The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. John O'Brennan wrote in the Irish Times today that the EU needs to establish itself as a global superpower and to establish its own army. John is a professor in the Department of Sociology at Maynooth University. He's director of the Maynooth Centre for European and Eurasian Studies. And he is with me, as is Mark Price. Mark is co-chair of the Irish anti-war movement and a founding member of the Irish Neutrality League. Gentlemen, you're both very, very welcome to the show. John, given you wrote this piece today, I want to start with you. What, as you see it, are the arguments in favour of an EU army? I think, Kieran, there are two of them. The first is about the threat landscape, that it is real, it's varied and it's accelerating. And this includes the possibility of a conventional Russian military attack on the central and East European members of the EU, and it includes a whole range of hybrid threats, including to things like subsea cables and to the utility systems that European members of the EU and NATO use. So that's the first point. The second, I think, however, is equally important and is going to become more important as the year goes on. And that is the real prospect that the United States, under a second Trump presidency, would take the US out of NATO. And that would leave the Europeans in the position for the first time since 1949, where they would actually have to defend themselves. So I think this is Something because Trump's comments, of course, have been all over the news in recent weeks, it has um, provoked a lot of thinking in European chancelleries. And I think finally we're getting to the point where we can have a sober and grown up conversation about the need for an EU army. Mark Price, as I say, is with us as well. Mark, do you acknowledge either of those needs? And do you think Europe needs an army? No, um, I think that the uh, the article, John's article I read uh, today, which is based on the, the Russian threat, uh, not just now, but going back to 1949, um, it, I think the first thing to be said is that the European military uh, developments, which have occurred particularly since 2002, 2004, um, have occurred initially largely at the instigation of the arms industry. I mean, the um, then head of EADS, now Airbus, boasted in 2004 that the EA, the European Defence Agency was their baby. So this is the first context to be set. The second context that I, I'd like to set is the use of the Russian threat, the failure to explain Putin's action. This is extraordinary how the Putin threat is always described as this pure aggression for, for which there is no reason. No mention of the 30 years of NATO expansion, of provocations, uh, withdrawals from, unilateral withdrawals from um, ballistic missiles, treaties and so forth. Almost certainly involvement in a coup in 2014, in which a, a democratically elected uh, pro-Russian president was replaced with an unelected pro-Western one in Ukraine. Um, and then this uh, memorandum of 2008, uh, of 2008 rather, uh, in which the intention that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO was made clear. And, and this leading right up until 2022, NATO interoperability uh, operations in Ukraine, uh, all of this created a threat which Russia responded to in February 2022. And we don't need a, a European army to do this. We need to have a different 
policy, full stop. Okay. I, I know people would expect me to kind of to, to um, ask you kind of whether you're justifying the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let me instead ask a slightly different question. If Russia responds to perceived threats and the presence of NATO on its border by invasion, does what John says not ring true? NATO is now on its border in Finland. It's on the Belarusian border in Poland, which is kind of the, the Russian border by proxy. Except that it's the, it's the other way around. The, the threat to our safety and security has been caused by NATO and by military expansion. This is the point. And that what Russia have been doing, it's not to justify it, but it's to explain it so that we can have an intelligent uh, security policy. No more than explaining Hamas's action on October the 7th justifies it. We, there's no explanation of the actuality of why Putin invaded the Ukraine. It's not to justify it, but it means that what we want, what we need here is we needed, for instance, a proper negotiation, which was scuttled, you know, first by Boris Johnson and then by the Americans. We need to return to the Minsk agreement over the Donbass. But here's the thing, Kieran. Putin has succeeded because one thing is certain, <coughs> Ukraine will never be in NATO now because that will trigger a third world war. So he has actually succeeded in making sure that Ukraine is now in neutral buffer zone. Mm. So, uh, John, uh, the way Mark kind of describes it is kind of, uh, you know, uh, NATO are not the kind of the saviours they are often uh, uh, painted to be in this part of the world. And kind of replacing them with the European army, I guess, is kind of replacing like with like. This is an abject lie. And it's a lie that is promoted all over the world by the Kremlin. It isn't NATO that has invaded any state in Eastern Europe over the last 15 years. It is Russia. In Georgia in 2008, again in Crimea and the Donbass in 2014, and again two years ago in the reinvasion of Ukraine. If you ask anybody in Central and Eastern Europe where the threat comes, they're absolutely clear. There is a palpable fear of Russia. And it's based not just on recent events, but the actual lived experience of people in the Baltic states and elsewhere. And it's also because the Russians are very open in what they say they're going to do. Dmitry Medvedev, for example, the uh, former president, still very close to Putin, you know, talks about nuclear war uh, very openly. The senior members of Putin's administration similarly threaten almost on a daily basis Poland and the Baltic states. So that's what I mean about the threat landscape. And it is completely untrue to say that NATO provoked Putin. Here's the big difference. The decisions to join both NATO and the European Union, they were all taken by sovereign states in Central and Eastern Europe, escaping from the prison that they were uh, part of when part of the Soviet bloc. The big question is why none of them opted to gravitate towards Russia. And it's because they remember their history and they understand very well what domination by Russia means. Mark, I mean, that. The... You know the, the the phrase you use is NATO expansionism. I mean, it it it, it, it does that not undermine the uh, kind of the, the the democratic will of these uh, countries? NATO didn't invade any of them. They all applied to join. Uh, yes and no, but just to go yes, um, just to go back about the unanimity of people living in Central Europe with regard to Russia. This is clearly not the case of a significant number of people in the Donbas region of Ukraine or 
people in South Ossetia, in Georgia, where Russia invaded, yes, and as they did in, in, in Ukraine, um, because of specific attacks which had occurred against these people. So these are the details which are really relevant. The idea that Poland, when Poland was entered in, was it 1999 into NATO? Um, at that time, the Cold War was over. Mm. Um, but in fact, the Polish antagonism to the Russians was very real at that time. Um, and John would say, well, this is because of their experience in the Soviet era and mm. so on. But that is a generalization. And it's putting words into other people's mouths or it's imagining what other people think. There are a wide range of views in, in Eastern Europe uh, relation to their history and in, in Russia itself. And so I don't think this is a simplification. And the important thing we need to do is to try and find peace. But there's a trend. I mean, if it was just Poland, uh, uh, John's point is there's a trend that none of those former Warsaw Pact countries gravitated towards Russia once the the, the reins were released. They all gravitated towards the West. Well, it's easy to kind of point at kind of one of them and suggest, well, listen, it's it's a bit more complicated than Poland or somewhere. But then why every country? What about the election of Yanukovych, who was the Ukrainian president, who was pro-Russian, democratically elected, replaced by a non-elected uh, pro-Western president. The, it's not that democracy is something that everybody wants and therefore they hate Russia. It's not as simple as that. The, 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 the expansion of NATO too has to do with the offer of uh, military aid, which is the, how these imperialists, because frankly, NATO is an imperialist organization. It is not a defense organization. It is, and everybody knows this outside of the elites and the leaders. Its purpose is the, military, the expansion of the military-industrial complex, and it does this in order to expand its field of operations, in order to justify its vast budgets. And so it's not the choices of the people of these countries. Perhaps following the attack of Ukraine, people are paranoid, understandably, mm. and they'd like to be defended. But the original thing has been caused uh, by on the in the other direction. So if you, if you take NATO out of the equation, do you think there would be have been uh, uh, over the last kind of 10 years peace in Georgia and peace in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin would have no designs on the territory in those countries had it not been for NATO. Uh, well, yes, um, uh, arguably. I mean, this is counter, counter um, whatever the word Counterfactual. Counterfactual, but um, arguably, because take the Georgia um, intervention in 2008, the um, separatists had been massively armed by the United States. And uh, the, as I said about the Ukrainian coup of 2014, I mean, there's nothing definite about this, but the far right uh, elements were definitely supported. There's that leaked memo from Victoria Newland, you know, at the time, where you, you know, the, the, the one um, where they, uh, where it's acknowledged their role in fomenting this kind of mm. activity. And um, it's this idea that this, the Russians are the bad guys. And I mean, you notice it's predicated on the whole idea that the Soviet Union was this terrible prison. This is the word, John. Used. Well, I think it's slightly predicated on the fact that uh, in this kind of uh, binary, kind of NATO or Russia, it's only Russia who's kind of violently invaded another country um, in the last uh, couple of years. In Eastern Europe. I think you'll probably agree. Uh, we will. You're not talking about uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, no, I said in the last couple of years. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Well, in the last yeah. couple of years, even um, the uh, well, the you know the support of Israel at the moment and so on. It's not Russia who's doing this. But okay, the fact of there's undeniable. I'm not justifying. I'm just explaining the um, Russian intervention in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, and if we understand it, I believe 
we can start to look in a more sober way at the European. And a final point I'd like to make is that what would be any different now if there was a large European army in relation to the Ukrainian war? Would that army be helping Ukraine any better than the Americans have been helping Ukraine. Okay, let, well, to bring it back to the point, and, and, and Mark got kind of a, a, a nice chunk of time there, John, so I want to be fair and, and give you time to respond to some of what he said. We might start with that final point. I mean, ha, ha, had this European army project been embarked upon several years ago and one existed two years ago when Russia invaded Ukraine, what difference might it have made? It would have made every difference. The reason that Putin did what he did two years ago is because he was emboldened to do it. Number one, because there was no meaningful response to his aggression in Georgia in 2008. Secondly, because there was no meaningful response to Crimea in 2014. And in fact, after 2014, the German government, led by Angela Merkel, signed the Nord Stream Agreement that would have brought Russian energy into Europe. The German policy of normalizing relations with Russia is one of the reasons that we've ended up where we are. If there had been a proper deterrent in place, Putin would never dare to have done what he did two years ago. And we have to now confront the fact that he has more ambitious designs. If you bother to actually read what Vladimir Putin has written and not the Kremlin talking points that Mark has just recited, you will see very clearly he does not accept that the Baltic states ever had the right to exist as independent states. Uh, He absolutely says that Poland should have never been allowed to do what it did after 1991, that these states constitute part of what he calls the near abroad. This is an imperial zone of influence. And this is exactly why in 2013-14, as Ukraine was trying to escape from this, the popular rebellion took place. And it's, it's absolutely a travesty for Mark to describe that as some kind of coup. There were huge numbers of Ukrainians out on the streets of Kiev and other cities protesting against ro- Russian domination. They want to live in a normal European country, not in the shadow of a violent dictatorship. John O'Brien, Mark Price, thank you both very much for joining me here on the show. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.